Join Greenbook at the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange Conference Series. IIEX is your global hub for connections, inspiration, and innovative solutions in market research. Visit greenbook.org events to learn more about events in Asia, the Americas, and Europe. Use the code podcast for 20% off general admission on all upcoming events. Innovate MR is an independent sampling and res tech company delivering faster answers from targeted audiences to support agile research. Innovate MR also develops forward-thinking products, empowering businesses to create data-driven strategies and identify growth opportunities. It's Lenny Murphy with another edition of the Green Book Podcast. Appreciate you taking the time to share this time with us. And today is going to be fun, and it's a first. Normally, the uh, podcast is a one-on-one conversation, but today we're going to have a panel of great folks that I know and like an awful lot that we call the Fraud Squad. And you may know them from the work that they've done with the Insights Association and some other groups regarding sample quality and some of the presentations they've made. And this is going to be a a fun conversation. So I'm going to let them introduce themselves one at a time, and then we will dive in. So first, Carrie Campbell, VP of Analytics at Ketchum. Carrie, welcome. Thank you. How are you doing, Lenny? I'm Carrie Campbell. I'm working on the analytics team right now at Ketchum. I've uh, just started there this year and happy to be there. Prior to that, I have spent many years in the media and market research industry, more than my headhunter allows me to actually admit to. So I've been knocking around for more than a little bit. So we're getting into some fun stuff that's very near and dear to my heart. Thank you, Carrie. I've never heard that uh, headhunters want you to downplay your experience before. That's a point. That's a point. All right. Next, Tina Maurer, group scientist at P&G. Tia, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me, Lenny. Uh, my name is Tia Maurer. I do work at Procter & Gamble. I'm working in the products research department here in household care. I've been with the company almost 25 years, and I have worked in products research the entire uh, 25 years. I have worked partly in different roles here, beauty care and household care. But one of the roles that I had here was running a research facility. So sometimes that makes me the best client to work with for suppliers, and sometimes I am their worst nightmare. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to leave that right there, Tia. <laughs> uh, for the, our listeners, you'll probably get a sense of what she means by that uh, as this conversation goes on. All right. Then Efren Ribeiro, Sampling the Panel Online Access Advisor at Zinkler. Efren, welcome. Welcome myself, Yes. I um, I started my career a long, long time ago. First half, I worked in syndicated research, media research at Arbitron. And then the latter half, probably from 95 forward, I uh, worked with online panels and traditional panels. And so I've worked doing global panels for TNS, Ipsos, and most recently at Kantar. And I um, actually got out of the business three years ago, three or four years ago, and uh, have been doing light consulting since that time. Thank you, Efren. Welcome. So just a couple small companies that you've worked with, (laughs) you know, nobody's really ever heard of before. Uh, (laughs) And then Mary Beth Weber, whom I have to say, I have known Mary Beth since the almost the beginning of my career. So for going on 20 years. Uh, so that's, uh, that's really cool. You are the advocate at Lucy AI and the founder of Case for Quality. Mary Beth, welcome. Thank you very much, Lenny. And thanks for having us. Always fun to be with you. Yes, I help Lucy with and, and work with clients on being able to find answers from their enterprise-wide data. And uh, prior to Lucy, I actually was working with Sigma Validation, which is when I came across Lenny many moons ago, and it was helping brands to ensure compliance to their research data quality standards. And um, really, that really was the inspiration for for CASE, is that I was working there. I saw, you know, a lot of what was happening behind the scenes in data quality. Uh, Prior to Sigma, I actually was on 
the data intelligence side of the industry and seeing really how the sausage was made and that brands really weren't asking questions about the data. They never asked, how is this information made that I'm basing these major decisions on? And I think one of the biggest ones is when I worked at this company that provided information that supported major decision-making in research in commercial mortgage-backed securities and REITs. And in those boardrooms, not one person in the entire time that I was there, four and a half years, ever asked about how the data was made. And I always saw, you know, the methodologists and data scientists, they'd get flustered with the data when things weren't working out right. And none of the brands ever knew what was happening behind the scenes. So when I got at Sigma and then I saw some of the issues that was going on there and working with some of the brands who struggled with why were they getting inconsistent findings when they were using the same sample sources, the same agencies, the same survey tool? They started asking questions. And actually, it was Alan Whitehouse, who is now at GE Appliances. He was at Kraft at the time, who said, we really need a coalition for sample quality. And that's how this all came into fruition. So that's my background. And that's my passion about data quality and really getting the brands to understand and be aware of what's happening. And that's been a really, I think it's been an uphill battle because when I was at Sigma, they would see me as somebody who wanted to sell a service and they would see black and white in the data that there were issues, but then they would have their partners that would tell them everything is fine here. And I actually recruited Ephraim Ribeiro when he came out of retirement (laughs) and was like, come join the cause for a case. And he's like, they paid me so much money, you know, to be able to solve the data quality issue. Why should I join case? And I'm like, well, now you're independent. You're not part of Cantar. You're not part of Ipsos. Nobody's looking at you now as somebody who's trying to sell a service. You now are an independent, unbiased third party, you know, providing your expertise. So... There's my little background. <laughs> no, and that's a great intro, Mary Beth. And I was thinking, so you were a fact checker before fact checking was cool. So uh, yeah, <laughs> there's that. So going back, right, when when you and I first met, and, and let's talk a little context around this, you know, that was still in the heyday of telephone research and the very beginning of online research. And, you know, this is not a new issue. It is an issue that has always existed in the research space, uh, even back when you know, doing door-to-door interviewing. You know, sample quality is the bedrock of good data and of market research. And I think that we went through a phase as an industry where we kind of adapted, at least from a commercial standpoint, the idea that eh, it's, it's good enough. It's good enough. With the the advent of the large online panels, and okay, you know that that may be right. It was good enough. You know, we there's there's tools to deal with some of those issues, and we all know what they are, and we don't need to to dive into those right this second. But something changed in the last few years, and I think it's reached a bit of a crisis point from my perspective, at least, because we now have a supply constriction problem as well as a quality challenge with the existing supply. And that is creating a glaring, obvious issue in many studies. And in this conversation is not about about naming names. It's not about anything of that nature, but it is from, at least from my perspective, and and we'll see where things go, to understand that, that sample quality is foundational to research, period. End of story. If we don't have good sample, we don't have good data, we can't make good decisions. And, you know, brands can spend a lot of money to make really big mistakes. They cost them even more money. So we, we have to pay attention to this. And the band-aids that we've been trying to put on it may not be sufficient to address this new dimension of not just a quality challenge, but also a supply challenge. So that that is my perspective before we dive into this. Anybody have anything they want to add to that? Yeah, Mary Beth, raise your hand. Go ahead. I would just quickly say for when I was at Sigma and we first created the tool that was starting to look at, you know, participation in online research. And first we got a lot of pushback from doing that. 
And I know what I think is funny now is Ephraim was one of the ones that was pushing back against it. But now I know now after working with him, why he was pushing back is because he didn't see it as an issue because he was doing what was necessary to be done in monitoring the participation frequency in market research studies. What he realizes now is that why he was losing the battle in terms of sales for his company is that his competitors were not. You know, so I think that's kind of interesting. But the other thing that I saw when I was at Sigma is how it changed. Like you're talking about, these panels used to have direct relationships with their respondents. They would have the PII. They had the respondent names. They had their email addresses. They had telephone numbers and physical addresses. All that information was given to Sigma and we were able to track participation history. Then what happened is they would tell the brands that they were using their own panel. Well, we would see at Sigma that wasn't the case because what was happening is they were sending us files from all of these different places, which were not even, you know, formatted in the same way. We knew they were coming from all different suppliers and some of them lost relationships with brands because of that, because they were saying they were using their own sample when they weren't using their own sample. And I think that's where it changed is everybody started becoming aggregators of everybody else. And then it became unmanageable. Yeah. Yeah. So Efren, from your perspective, since you were in the weeds on the on the other side, from the supplier perspective, um, I was going to say, from the beginning, the accessing these respondents really changed probably around 2004, 2005. Up until then, I think the traditional panel model was what companies followed. They actually recruited respondents into a fixed database that they took care of. And they had exclusive relationships with suppliers. We cut deals with Yahoo. We were recruiting there directly. We were recruiting directly from a company called I1. And we had an exclusive deal with them. Around that time, those companies realized, the Yahoo's and the I1's and all the others, that they didn't have to have those exclusive relationships with companies like ours. They could sell those respondents to everybody, to everybody. And I remember the day that, you know, one of those companies informed me that they were no longer going to sign an exclusive agreement with us. They were going to sell to everybody. And I said, this is going to be a big mess eventually. And that was back 2003, 2004. That in combination with the use of, of routers, I think has really kind of complicated the situation. And it's, you know, it's created an opportunity for fraud to occur. Putting the incentives online, digitizing that whole process, that makes it really easy for people to, to get at the, the actual uh, incentives. So all those things I think have contributed and as an industry, you know, we haven't really thought through how this big system that's evolved independently and, you know, through different ways, how things were going to fit together. And the way they fit together today, I think, is one of the consequences of fraud and the data quality issues. And I'm sure we'll be talking about this later in the frequency of use issues. Yeah, well, it's the same thing within programmatic advertising, right? And I think that that is the corollary that we have to look at. So, you know, there's billions of dollars annually in ad fraud. And because programmatic is designed to create efficiencies, part of that efficiency is the person who's going to click the most gets the most ads. That's simply the way that it works. And that's a good thing when... Well, kind of. (laughs) It's kind of a good thing. I can see how you think it's a good thing. In our world, that's not necessarily a good thing. And it lends itself towards this this opening up of a whole host of quality issues, you know, professional respondents and and flat out fraud and bots, et cetera, et cetera. So this tension between quality and speed, I think is and cost is something that we really have to figure out a way to resolve. Now, from that perspective, Tia. We hear often from the sample provider community uh, and and just the supply community in general, well, clients won't pay for quality. They're only interested in in the cheapest 
the cheapest cost. Now, when we collect data, let's say for grit, that is not what we see. We ask that question and we hear clients saying quality comes first. You know, price is actually usually from that cheaper, faster, better, cheaper is at the bottom of the list. You know, it's better and faster and then then cost. What are you experiencing within, uh, I know you may not be able to speak for P&G as a whole, but at least as a buyer within P&G, what is your perspective on that particular issue of this quality versus cost? Yeah, I think this is a, a tricky one. I know here at P&G, even though we do a lot of research and spend billions of dollars on research every year, we still have a lot of brands that we have to support and we want to spend our money wisely. But we're we're guided more by the what is the best value for your dollar. And value would be that I actually get good data that's usable and I'm not making bad business decisions based on fraudulent or poor quality data. There is a problem, however, and I think that the suppliers have created it in that there's always this spring up mom and pop supplier going, well, I can build a panel. If they build a panel, all I need to do is collect a few names and then sell them to people to do surveys or whatever. So I think that a lot of the businesses that really want to put in quality checks or do a good job, as Efren had you know, alluded to earlier, that you know he was doing that and didn't realize that other suppliers weren't. The other suppliers aren't, and then they're undercutting the price. And sometimes, at least years ago, when people didn't get to see their raw data, they weren't seeing the, they were just getting the final data report. They weren't seeing that there was poor quality in the data. I think with all of the new DIY tools, it's coming more and more into the, the mainstream where people are seeing all of their raw data and they're going, hey, something doesn't look right. They're programming their own surveys. They're seeing that you know, their 10-minute survey, somebody took it in two minutes. And it's not even humanly possible to do that. They're starting to see straight lining where people are answering the same question over and over the same way. I think we're all starting to take a peek under the hood, which we couldn't do before. P&G's done it for years, but other companies are starting to do it. And I think that they're saying, oh my gosh, there's a poor data quality here. And yes, of course I would pay more for better quality data, but I think you have this double-edged sword and I'll give an example. My brother was laid off from his job during COVID after working 23 years. And he's the type of person that he runs and starts looking and doing interviews, trying to find another job right away. Well, this went on for a few weeks because a lot of places weren't, you know, working in, in the, you know, have their factories open or, you know, what have you. He does electronics maintenance. And so he couldn't find a job right away. So after a few weeks, he called unemployment to file unemployment. And because they were offering the extra $600 every week, um, somebody claimed to be him and scammed his unemployment check. And so then it was upon my brother to come up with his birth certificate, his driver's license and everything else to prove he wasn't perpetrating the fraud against the unemployment system. But we are now a year and a half later and he, they never closed the fraud case and he was never able to get a case open and he never collected anything, even though he wasn't perpetrating the fraud. I say that example to say, if we offer the respondent more money, where is the sweet spot as to where they're appreciated or as to where we're encouraging more fraud? Because right now we're not offering them a lot of money, but we still have 30% fraud in our data set or more. So, you know, we are willing to pay more, but is it going to make the problem worse is the question. So I think the money has to maybe go to the suppliers to actually implement the right things to stop the fraud in the first place and maybe not necessarily to the respondent themselves. I'm not sure. It's just, a, it's a tough one. Yeah. It is. Now, Carrie, you spent most of your career in advertising research. So that analogy that I used around some of the problems that we've seen within the advent of programmatic advertising, does that resonate for you? And kind of putting on your analyst hat as well, what corollaries are you seeing between challenges within the advertising ecosystem and challenges within the sample ecosystem, if any. It absolutely does resonate because you're running into some of the same issues. I was just reading an article recently where it says that bots alone are costing the ad industry $5 million a day. Nobody's ever quantified that cost for the market research industry. I would submit, and when I chat with clients, internal, external, when we're talking about doing a study and we're talking about the pricing, 
And they say, oh, no, 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 we can't do it. It's too high. It's too high. It's going to be half that. It's like, okay. How much is it going to cost to do this over when you get that data back? How much is it going to cost when you launch this new product, when you launch this new service and it fails? How much is it going to cost when your communications don't work? I mean, there's, there's a lot of hidden costs in there. And, and I think a lot of the end users of research don't necessarily see how much it impacts and how far the impact of bad data really goes. I mean, we've all been in this business for a long time and we've all seen it. If you get a bad number on a piece of research, you can't kill that number with a baseball bat. That's the one thing everybody remembers that 92 billion people did whatever, even though there's only 7 billion on the planet, they're going to remember the 92 billion. So it behooves all of us to get it right, get it right the first time. Initially, we may have to make some compromises. We may be looking at, you know, instead of a 1,000 in-tab sample, we're looking at 750 if we really don't have the money in our budget, but I'd rather have 750 validated, qualified, real, engaged respondents than a thousand crap ones that I'm going to throw 400 out of to begin with. And the other thing that, that I like to remind people is that in the market research business, we wind up having our reputations very closely attached to the work that we do. And so not only is there a cost for the company, there's a reputational cost for each and every one of us. If I turn out a a piece of work and the respondents are garbage, that means the results are garbage, my recommendations and conclusions are worthless, and I give that to a client or I give that internally, it gets used and things go south, that's going to be on me. It's not going to be like, oh, well, we got bad respondents from XYZ vendor. Nobody knows, nobody cares. It's just the end result was not good. And that was based on our recommendations. So there's a lot of levels of cost involved here that I don't think people are really thinking through. Agreed. And I want to echo that from uh, personal experience. So when Rockhopper, my my last full service company, we were doing a large multi-country study for a major technology company. And we were a a young company and it was a big win, right? This was a multi-million dollar deal. You know, it made the business. And in one of the countries, uh, it was a Latin American country, and we we were just, it was all online, and we were amazed at how well it went until we went to present the results to the client. And the client in the country looked at the data and said, this is bullshit. There is no way these numbers are right. And when we dug in, because we didn't, we took it at face value. We were just thrilled that we got the completes. And when we dug in, sure enough, Every bit of that data was fraud, was fraudulent. And it cost us that relationship. We never got another piece of work from that client. And it cost us with our, you know, we had a huge debt with our supplier that we had to work through. I mean, it had major ramifications for the entire business that hurt us badly. So I want to echo what you just said from personal experience for our supplier partners listening what we're talking about here, it's real and it can kill your business if we don't deal with it correctly. It truly can. I've lived it. So, right. Absolutely. Carrie, go ahead. Yeah. and, And one more thing. One of the challenges that we've found with Case, even in the presentations that we've done, we'll have market researchers who have been doing this for several years, typically more junior guests as opposed to the senior ones, but even some who have been around for a bit have no idea. And they didn't realize that they should be asking some of the questions like, I didn't know you had to tell vendors to take out the duplicates. I didn't know you had to ask them to check for speeders or for straight liners. I didn't know that you should be checking IP addresses to make sure your sample is in the US if that's where you want them to be. And on and on and on. So there's also a challenge that we have of the next generation of market researchers coming up 
that aren't being trained to look for some of these things or to ask for some of these questions. InnovateMR has recently appointed market research leader Kristen Luck to the board of directors and has garnered significant investment from civic partners. With this, the team has entered a new era of exponential growth, expanding their ability to help brands around the world make data-driven decisions. The team has created the Vision Suite, a Stevie Award-winning ResTech platform offering researchers a comprehensive collection of next-generation products enabling survey design, sample procurement, fraud mitigation, reporting, and do-it-together team support. Uh, let's talk about the study. So it came up. Do you, some of the recent presentations, you, you did a landmark study with multiple panel providers to establish some benchmarks and figure out what was going on. And I remember being in the audience listening to your first presentation of IA and thinking that there are a lot of people that were going, holy crap. You know? <laughs> so let's talk about those holy crap moments. What were some of the major findings on this, this study that you did? Who wants to go first? Well, I think one of the um, the key takeaways is that fraud exists, and it exists on, in in samples that are gen pop, which we specifically did the study of gen pop because we knew if we were going to do a low incidence category, we were going to get a much higher level of fraud. But to see that fraud on our study with again gen pop ten minutes, probably tiny incentive. And the average rate across the different vendors, I think, was around seven, eight percent. That was kind of, um, I hate to say gratifying, but it was kind of gratifying because up until now, we had this thing called fraud in our industry, but nobody spoke about it. And if you go back and look at the research, nobody's done any, any study on, on fraud in our industry. Uh, this is the first one. And that was part of the reason why we wanted to do it. So establishing the fact that it's there, it's one study, it's probably it's one thing that we learned is most likely it varies from season to season. We learned that more from what the vendors, uh, the detection vendors told us. So that was uh, one. The other major, I think, discovery is that these tools, though imperfect in, in some ways and different, and some of these are very new tools that only have been out in the uh, in the market for a couple of years. They work, and you just have to know how to use them. They're going to identify devices that most probably are very suspicious looking, not necessarily because of the fraud in the survey, but because of the way they're set up. So they're like uh, detectives that are looking for the clues and they have these 10 clues that they look at, very efficient at finding devices, respondents that are trying to hide their identity. So those were, in general, I think, what, what we saw from, from this uh, particular initial study. And, you know, we had some other learnings that we never publicized, but we did look at the different types of suppliers, and they all had fraud. Some were better than others. And I think there probably requires some additional research to really be able to say with conclusion that this particular supplier is, you know, type of supplier is worse than this other one when it comes to fraud. Now, what about the frequency of participation? You know, for a regular panel, you would kind of expect, by definition, a professional respondents, really. <laughs> you know, I mean, you start to a panel to take research to earn incentives. So there is an element of that that they're going to participate. But when you're dealing with routers and marketplaces that particularly are randomly recruiting from multiple websites, intuitively, I would not expect to see the same people showing up over and over again. So what did you see about that, about frequency of participation? Efren, go ahead. You know, that was, to me, the most surprising discovery. It, you know, you could call it fraud or it doesn't matter what you call it. It's a bad thing for the research that's being conducted to have a respondent who has just spent the last four hours doing three surveys or five surveys or 10 surveys. What we found was that um, the, the respondents, when we actually asked them, 
how many surveys do you do, you know, daily? They told us they did a lot. <laughs> and so we followed that, that clue about a lot because we were surprised that they were admitting that they were doing over five surveys a day. And it so happens that these tools, these detection tools, they now are able to track the surveys that a respondent's entered within the ecosystem of the detection company. So it's not even the entire ecosystem. It's like a third of the ecosystem, say, or a quarter of it. And one of the companies actually produces a number for the last 24 hours. How many, how many surveys entered within the last 24 hours, the, that particular device? And the average was 21.5 in our eight different suppliers. And that to me was just eye-opening. And of course, when we went and we told the group of people that were sponsoring this and the Insights Association, the others, they said, well, that, that could be like uh, screeners. Maybe that's not true. Maybe there, there's something wrong with your, your data. So we went back to the detection vendors and said, did we do anything wrong here? And first of all, they said, this is what we see all the time. This is not anything new. And then the, uh, that one company, there was another company that volunteered. And they said, well, we actually monitor the in-survey data quality for this one large company that has a panel and does you know, sample aggregation just like everybody else. And so we have two months worth of data for that. We can actually see, tell whether they completed, the, you know, they, they went through the survey. And in that, in, it was in that particular database that we saw that, you know, 3% of the respondent population was doing, I think it's 18 or 19% of the uh, survey completions. That was more than the, you know, the group that does uh, zero to, or one to three surveys per uh, session. So it was pretty alarming to me having lived in a world where we were controlling by category, by category, how many surveys somebody could take in a week, you know, it would be, or in two weeks. It was incredible because what you have is devices that are taking 20, 30, and, you know, in some cases we saw over 100 surveys. So frightening. Yeah. All right. So let's, uh, I want to be conscious of time and we could go on for a very long time. I see Mary Beth, you're, you raise your hand and I'm going to come in right to you. How has the industry reacted to this disclosure process? <laughs> you know? well, first, I, ju I just want to quickly say something off of what Efren talked about and with the frequency of, of the participation. Cause what we found is, as he said, it's devices taking that much and that they're taking more surveys than is even humanly possible. And the question really is open as to, are these respondents being assisted by bots or technology? Are they making it through the screener and then turning on the bots or technology? And there's just more research that has to be learned. We also found that, you know, they made it past the fraud detection and they made it past even our manual detection, like the open ends, they made it through there, these very frequent responders. So they're even employing very high-tech technology to be able to get through that and complete that many surveys. So that is very concerning. Regarding the industry's reaction, there are some research companies, a number of them that have reached out to us, who actually had similar findings as we did, and they want to cooperate and collaborate with us. So we're looking to see how we do that with them. Other industry reactions from some suppliers is like, they feel that, oh, it's because the survey is too long and boring, which we do agree that that is a contributing factor to poor data quality. But this is a completely separate issue. The respondents and how frequent that they're being reused in studies is a very different issue than them being engaged in a study and the survey instrument. And then for the client side researchers, not only the sponsors, but we even have clients that are reaching out to us. There are different ones, like there are sophisticated ones like Tia and those at Procter & Gamble, who they have the resources and they have the expertise that they could delve into these issues on their own. But then there's many more that don't have these resources. And so they're looking to case to be part of a coalition and form with other brands as to how we can help guide them 
to really be able to tackle this problem and work together. And so Tia, obviously, you know, P&G is the number one, number two, depending on what year it is, you know, uh, spender on research in the world. You carry a lot of weight. Brands as a, as a whole carry a lot of weight. What does this mean for brands in general? And what can we expect from that side of the table going forward to help drive change? Yeah, I, I know that it's critically important that we get the business decisions right because we're spending a lot of money. And I know that we went back, P&G got their eye on it when I started, you know, shouting from the mountaintops. And they said, you know, we want to go back and look at, you know, some of the studies that we've done in the past where we were getting data saying that we were going to have, you know, fabulous results in market and we get to market and it's very vanilla. So what went wrong? What's the postmortem analysis? You know, what should we have done? So myself and a statistician went and reanalyzed the test, stripped all the fraud away, and we came up to a different conclusion. And we've done this in a couple of our studies. And one of them was on a Crest Pro Health rinse that we had initially launched, and it got one stars, Amazon reviews, and just horrible. I mean, brand equity is tarnished, et cetera. And so how do you then fast follow and launch something that's better and, and drive people to the shelf to buy it after they've had a poor experience and they don't like it? And that's what's difficult. You know, we're spending millions and billions of dollars, you know, setting up, you know, these lines and capital at our manufacturers based on consumer findings that are wholly fraudulent. And so what we did was a smaller scale study brought some consumers in to try the mouth rinse. And there were people who were pretending to take the mouth rinse and they were throwing it away in the cup in the trash. And we could see that. So we knew they hated it, but they weren't telling us that. So, and then you also have people who just flat out participate in the studies to get the free product or the incentive, and they're not really actually paying attention. Those sorts of people artificially inflate the results because we found a lot of times the frauds will rate everything good or very good or excellent. And just, you know, it artificially inflates the results. You think you've got a good product, you go to market. Brands are taking notice of this. I know that at P&G personally, a lot of our beauty care division, they decided that they were going to scale back on large studies and do things with, you know, smaller, more qualitative. So the suppliers who continue to not do something about this or not try to do something about it are just going to lose their income because we're going to scale back and do smaller studies, do more team tests in-house, et cetera. And I think other brands who are waking up to this and seeing this as I'm going out to Quirks and IIEX and I'm sharing our lived experience and what we're seeing they're starting to dial back too, or ask, what should we do? And they're, they're noticing it and they're dialing back their budgets and, and not spending on that sort of why pay for a lemon. It's like buying a lemon at a car dealership and then going back for a second lemon and a third lemon. Why would I do that? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I say often that I think the more tactical the decision is, the more wiggle room there is for bad data, the more strategic the decision is, the less wiggle room there is. And I would kind of bunch tracking and testing in that tactical side right so if you're doing an ad test and you're using a automation platform and you know it's a quick read and you know the 20 percent of it is probably you know probably iffy but that's good enough to say yeah that ad's you know probably gonna fly or not gonna fly but if you're doing a whole new product launch and that's a billion dollar decision then you know, you, you better be a lot more more careful. And I think that, that we're seeing the growth of qualitative research at scale, particularly communities and those type of solutions, as a part of the backlash against some of the challenges with quant. I see everybody's nodding. So, you know, I'm, I'm even encouraging, you know, some of my you know friends within the qualitative industry, like you've got a million people that you're engaged with in your panel. You know them, you've worked with them. There's an opportunity here to start engaging that population in quantitative research, but as if it was qualitative in terms of the recruiting and the engagement and the interaction and encouraging folks to start thinking about that. So that is a, that's a really interesting perspective on where it's going to go. Tia, go ahead. I will say, don't fool yourself into believing that qualitative research is fraud-free, for lack of better words. I know that we ran a device study where we actually put a chip in the device and we knew when it was turned on and when it was turned off. And we had, you know, women who were coming in telling us how much they were going to miss having this device in their home and that they were going to have to give it back to us. And they would come in every two weeks 
And at the end of the study, when we powered up the device and powered it off to make sure it was still recording the data, we had that signal. And then we were able to download the data and see that there were a number of women who turned it on the initial time and used it and never turned it on after that, but continued to come in and tell us that they were using it. Hmm. All right. Well, they are shooting down my ideas, Tia. Goodness. All right. I do, I do want to be cost of time. Carrie, advice that you can offer to the industry, to our colleagues or peers on things that they, they need to do right now to help mitigate against some of the challenges while the industry works this out. We will work it out. We will figure this out. There's too much money involved for us not to, but it's going to take time to do that. So, Carrie. We need to do what we do best. Ask questions. Ask questions of our suppliers, of our vendors. Ask where the sample is coming from. Ask how they validate it. Ask for the different variables that you want to see, the start time, the end time, how much time is spent on each question, because all those how to make money taking surveys websites will tell you, don't go through the survey too quickly, whip through it, stop on a question, go get a cup of coffee, come back, fill out the rest of it, then you're in the prescribed LOI of the survey. You know, don't say you work at market research. They, they know the red herrings. They know all of it. But there are things that we can do. And it's, it's going to take work. It's going to take the buyers of research and of sample to all be asking the same questions and having the same criteria. There's no silver bullet here. Currently, the sample ecosystem is broken. And if we all start working together, it will get fixed just because the suppliers will have to fix it. In the meantime, talk to the fraud detection firms. There's a bunch of them out there. They're going to help. They're not going to get everything if you retain one and they're cheap, like 10 cents a complete. They're dirt cheap to use relative to the peace of mind that you can get. But you're still going to have to do manual cleaning and do that. Read those open ends. They provide more information than entertainment value at the end of the day. You need to go through and do all that cleaning. Find out where your samples are coming from. If you don't like where your provider is getting your respondents, tell them you don't want to use that source anymore. Find out how they're validating exactly and get the device data, get all the respondent data that they have appended to your data. So you see it all. Don't just accept the survey results that you get. Ask if they're using a fraud protection service and what level it's set at. We know people who have fraud detection services never turn them on, but they say they have one and they do technically. So ask the questions. There's a list of questions to ask suppliers on the case for quality website. There are questions that and, and tips of how to write surveys with red herrings in there. There's all sorts of information that you can use now. And please, for all of us, do that. I want to add to it for our listeners, everything that Carrie just said, we do internally for our grit survey, meaning there, well, not there for applause, fraud exists within our industry with people participating in grit. I've seen it, and which at first was like, I mean, the cobbler's children has no shoes, right? It was insane. I mean, we've seen people deploying bots within grit because of the grit 50. You know, that's the incentive, you know, quote unquote. And and I get it. I understand. And we kind of created that situation for ourselves. But at the same time, that learning process, I just want to echo what you said, because we have to do those things as well. Uh, so even in a B2B study with other researchers, you know, those same methods are absolutely critical. I'll be doing that this weekend. So I'll be reading through verbatims and as part of looking for a pattern of responses for people to eliminate from the sample because they're crap. So none of us are immune to this, even when we're doing research on research. We could go on and on. I want to give everybody a chance to, to chime in and then we'll wrap up with Mary Beth. So Tia, anything else, final thoughts that you would add? I think that, you know, we blame the internet for this, you know, it started when we started doing internet research and everything we could get faster and everybody wants, you know, faster, better, cheaper, whatever. And I think the key driver a lot of times is faster because a lot of times I see even PNGs willing to pay more money just to get something faster, but faster doesn't always mean that it's 
better data quality. Um, and the internet has also allowed not just people to hide behind the internet and pretend to be somebody that they're not or set up multiple email accounts and, and become, you know, Susie and Susan and Suzanne, you know, as panelists and Sue as well. But I think it also allows them to have a, a place to go learn how to be a fraud. I mean, you can look no farther than YouTube and they show you how to set up a mobile clip farm step by step. So, you know, we're trying to be Indiana Jones running faster than the ball that's chasing us before we get crushed. And we have to constantly be in front of whatever we anticipate the next fraudulent scheme to be in order to collect incentives or whatever they're getting some value from the taking these online surveys or participating in the research. It's difficult. Thank you. Efren, final thoughts. I'm looking forward to working on the high frequency survey taker issue uh, to understand it better and hopefully to find out that it's, you know, it's not as bad as we, we think it is, but also to figure out how, how we can prevent that from occurring moving forward. And I, I think there are some of the companies that we've talked to since we did this are taking a keen interest in that. And hopefully we'll, we'll be able to work with them and, and put together, you know, some additional perspectives on what is going on there and, and some more advice to, you know, how to avoid uh, people that are taking 30, 40 surveys a day in your own research. Right. That'll be fun to follow as that comes forward. All right. Mary Beth, final word is yours. And we'll, we'll add a question of what's next for case in this general topic. Well, the final thing first, I want to just thank my, my fraud squad teammates because without them, we really wouldn't be moving this whole thing forward. It's just really great that they've come and partnered with me to keep this moving forward, you know, and all the brands out there that have sponsored this effort and the other suppliers and partners that we've had along the way, including you, Lenny, who we're all passionate about our industry. And we really, you know, we want to leave it in a good place as we depart from the industry too. We want to make sure that we leave it in a, in a good place. And I think we're all passionate. And I, I am thankful for, for Efren coming out of retirement and, and helping us with this. I call him the godfather of sampling with all the experience and expertise that he has. As for next steps, we're, we're working with even some of the international associations to look at, you know, what are the implications internationally? Are they seeing uh, some of the same issues that we're seeing here. I think some of the detection firms agreed that they are seeing similar issues that they found here. It's not only, you know, happening within the U.S. We're also meeting with clients who did not sponsor the study, but now are very interested in being involved and figuring out what's the best way, because there's so many different sectors when you're looking at say, a high incentive, low incident study, and you have the financial sector and you have the pharmaceutical sector and technology sector. And do we do all different studies or do we actually work with the individual clients and maybe provide some coaching for them? And then they provide the results back to case so that we could share it with the industry. So we're kind of looking at what's the best way to really move things forward. And then I know the Insights Association, Melanie, is putting together a task force. They're working on some things to put into place to try to correct some of the things that we found in here. And I think one of the things that would be good for us to do is a repeat of the same study that we did before, just to see how has the industry progressed with them implementing a task force and trying to implement some changes on that side. And with the brands taking step, I think one of the keys is really the brand involvement. The brands have to be involved. They have to be engaged and aware. I know there was one brand actually at IIEX who said that sample quality is not her problem. And I think the brands have to understand that it is their problem because otherwise you're letting the fox guard the hen house. You know, everybody's your partner is a stakeholder. And so they have a vested interest too, in the sample. So you want to make sure that you're monitoring what's going on. And I would say go to, as Carrie said, we have case number four quality, caseforquality.com. We have a resource page where past webinars, town halls, and you know, the SMR 28 questions, which is now what, 38 questions or whatever it is, but questions to support you in asking 
you know, of your sample providers, what they should be doing with their sample. And this podcast will also be linked there. We'll put a link back to you, Lenny. So we really appreciate and thank you for for giving us this visibility here. Oh, thank you all. Thank you all. And T, I've got to say, I can't believe we got through this without mentioning the oldest profession. We'll have to save that for the next one. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and for those who don't know what that is, listen to the second IA town hall that was done and you'll know yes. just like, <laughs> what we mean by that. It's an inside joke for the moment. Guys, this has been great. We will have another conversation about this. And kind of final thought too for everybody, you know, look at the focus that's being put right now with Elon Musk buying Twitter. The emphasis on fraud within that platform. I mean, the reality is any type of fraud is bad. It costs money. It's bad for business. And it's incumbent on all of us, to your point, Mary Beth, that we we need to uncover that and take that seriously. You know, there's always going to be, if there's money to be, be made, there's going to be bad actors trying to to do something to do that. And they, they're smarter than we are often. So we got to stay ahead of the curve. But we can't ignore it. We have to tackle this. It's a big deal. So until next time, we have you back. Thank you, everybody. And for our listeners, until the next edition of the Green Book Podcast, we appreciate your time. Please follow up with the case folks if you have any additional questions. And we'll talk to everybody again real soon. That's it. Bye-bye. Join Greenbook for the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange. This global conference series, also known as IIEX, is where connections are made, inspiration is found, and innovative solutions are discovered. With more than 90% of attendees using IIEX Insights to shape strategic business decisions, the return on investment is undeniable. Whether you're in Asia-Pacific, North America, Europe, or Latin America, IIEX is your gateway to the latest market research best practices, tech innovation, and strategies for transporting insights into action. Nurture your career and business with insights from across the globe. And here's a bonus. Use the special code PODCAST to save 20% on general admission for all IIEX events. Visit greenbook.org events today to learn more and register. See you there.